If you would turn to the book of James, we're going to be in the book of James this morning in chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that's very short, but it is packed with things that we need to understand. We're starting in verse 19 and we're going through verse 21. So let me uh, read the passage to you, get it framed in our mind, and then we will um, dig in. James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Every believer has a unique relationship to the word of God. A unique relationship. It's a relationship that distinguishes you as a believer from the unbelieving world. It was through God's word that you were first called and made alive in Christ. Even in the text that we just were reading, in the previous verse, verse 18, James says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that would, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In 1 Peter 1.23, Peter writes, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So you've been made alive through the word of God. And not only that, but when he was doing that, what, he, what God was doing in your heart was he was opening up your eyes to see what the word really was. That it was not just man's words, but it was, in fact, very God-breathed. He, Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you who, be, you who believe. So it has awakened us, and we know what it is. It's God's words to us, and so the believer loves God's word. He has a passion for it. He loves it. Just consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And all throughout that psalm, verse 16, verse 47, verse 105, verse 159, he repeats that passionate love and affection that he has for the words of God. And that is not something that a believer would say or could say. It is a special relationship that we have with God's word. It's a special relationship. And we cherish that here at Anchorage Grace. We know that the scripture is able to make you wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. We know that it is profitable for your life and it is profitable for your doctrine, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. You know the verse well. 
We know that it's instrumental in your sanctification of making you more like Christ. Jesus' words in John 17, 17 is that, that they would be sanctified in the truth. Say it with me. Your word is truth. That was pitiful. Your word is truth. It is truth, and it's the truth that sanctifies us. It's the truth that grows us as believers. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up into salvation. And of course, there's Paul's words to the elders at Ephesus and Acts chapter 20, verse 32, when he said, I commend to you, the, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It builds us up. It grows us. And that explains everything that we do here at Anchorage Race. It's our DNA. And it has been from the very beginning of our church, 43, three some years ago that's been built on these convictions. This is why we preach. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now and why we preach expositionally because we believe every word matters. It's why we have a, a school, a Christian school, a Grace Christian School. It's because we believe that the word of God should permeate every area of life, including our children's education, that education should not be secular. It should be, it should be filled with a biblical worldview because the word matters, because it's life. It's why we have a seminary, while we're training up men to be expositors and preachers, to fill pulpits, to serve as speakers of the truth because we believe in what the scriptures teaches about itself, about why it matters. We believe all life and all ministry needs to be oriented around the word of God. That's why we preach the word. That's why we have a bookstore so that we can get resources into your hands. That's why we want you to study the word on your own and to read it and to be absorbed in it. But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. Um, we talk a lot about being in the Bible a lot and reading the Bible a lot. We talk about the frequency of reading and and we talk about the, how long about spending time in. You know what we don't talk about very much? What we don't talk about very much is how to properly receive the word. Not just to read it, not just to understand it, but to receive it. We don't talk very much about that. All the study and the reading and the preaching in the world won't profit you much if you don't receive it correctly. I'm going to say this, one of the primary marks that distinguishes you as a believer in Jesus Christ is the way that you receive and respond to God's word, that distinguishes you from the world. Your response and your reception of God's word is a barometer for your spiritual life. It uncovers your heart. It exposes and it measures your spiritual health. How you receive the word matters. And then the question that we naturally have to ask ourselves then is how should we receive the word? What does it look like to properly receive the word? And we get our answer in the text before us. The answer can be summed up in the following three components. Believer must receive the word of God in a posture of submission 
commitment to holiness, and an attitude of humility. Those are the three components necessary to properly receive the word. And we'll dig into all of these. So let's look at the first, a posture of submission. Starting in verse 19, James is setting out the very urgency is what he's talking about. His urgency is clear. He says, know this, know this. It's a command, a command to recognize, a command to understand, to pay attention. I mean, it's drawing ourselves to the urgency of what he's about to say. This isn't an option. There's no room for consideration. It's a demand on every one of us that we need to own what he is about to say. And at the same time, look how gentle he is. I mean, there's no doubt in James's mind that he is addressing believers. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. He's addressing readers with this tenderness, with this affection. He is a brother, he is a shepherd, and he is softening their heart so that they're eager to hear what he has to say. Now, who is James and who is he writing to? If we look at the very first verse of the book of James, James introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that turns out to be a rather modest introduction because James happens to be the very brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had several brothers and sisters, according to Mark 6.3, and according to John 7, verse 5, during his earthly ministry, None of his brothers believed in him or, or believed that he was really the Messiah. It wasn't until after he had ascended did any of his siblings come to faith and James was among them. But more than that, James actually was one of the early eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Christ made a special appearance to his brother James. Read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Paul, uh, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then... He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And it was no doubt this appearance to James that was one of the key reasons why James ended up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the leader. In other words, James was a pastor, he was a shepherd. He was a leader. He was an influencer. He was perhaps the chief figure presiding over the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 when they were trying to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles who were coming in, should they be circumcised or not. And James was the chief spokesman there presiding over that. All I have to say is James was no small potatoes. As one commentator put it, if a stranger arrived in Jerusalem or in Antioch between the years of A.D. 40 and 62 and asked, who is the person in charge of this movement? Any knowledgeable Christian, including Peter or John or Paul, 
would have answered without hesitation, James. So this is, he is, this is not some obscure person writing an obscure single letter that we just happen to find in our New Testament. This is James. And when he spoke and when he wrote, people listened. And what the, the, he, he was addressing in his letter was, as he puts it, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And what that means is that James has in view those Jewish Christians who, because of persecutions and because of other events that were happening at that time, were Christians who were Jews who were living outside of Palestine. They had been dispersed throughout the ancient Near East. This is, all very, uh, this is a very early letter. In fact, it's actually the earliest writing we have in the New Testament. That even though the Gospels um, speak of events that happened before James wrote, the Gospels as books themselves were actually written by their authors after James wrote his letter, which means James is one of those incredibly unique witnesses to the early life of the infant Jewish Christian church. And it joins the early chapters of the book of Acts at a unique look at what the church was like before Gentiles began to pour in through the ministry of Paul. These Christians were experiencing trials. They were experiencing persecutions. There were many poor in the, among them, but there were also many rich, and that was causing some problems as well. But more than anything, the biggest issue that these folks were dealing with was, was the struggle that they were having as they were leaving the, the legalism of Judaism and, their, and, and they were embracing Christ and they were struggling to balance out what it means to have faith in Christ but at the same time to live that faith out. And, and that's the primary focus that James has is to give his readers an understanding, give them wisdom to know how to live rightly through your faith. Wisdom, after all, is nothing but skill at living. It is living with skill. And faith gives you the skill to live, but you have to live that out. And that's what James' purpose here is in writing. His overall concern was to help his readers understand how true saving faith works itself out in your life. And what his concern is here is for their reception of God's word. And it starts with a posture of submission. Posture of submission. Look at verse 19. It says, Know this, my brethren, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now this entire statement summarizes what it means to have a posture of submission. You need to have a posture of submission, an attitude of submission, of coming under the word in order to receive it the right way. It's a posture that recognizes divine authority and recognizes your subordination under that authority. And first of all, note the, the, the all-encompassing nature of this. You see that in the phrase, every person. This is, this is an all-encompassing command. It's comprehensive. 
It leaves no one out of consideration. It doesn't matter your gender, your age, your ethnicity, your occupation, your background, your education. It doesn't even matter how long you've been a believer. No one gets off. None of those factors matter. There are no allowances for privileged groups who might claim to be victims of circumstances that would say, well, I I don't have to follow this because I've been hurt this way or that way or uh, I've been dealt wrong this way. Nobody gets off. There are no exemptions. Every person must posture themselves in submission to God's word. Now, the posture is expressed in in three necessary but deceptively simple commands. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. And I say deceptively simple because this really is going to challenge every one of our hearts. This goes against the very fiber of our flesh to do these things. And if you don't think so, I don't know what to say. I mean, this goes against our very nature. Let's start with the first, being quick to hear. It speaks of eagerness. It speaks of attentiveness to listen. An eagerness to receive and hear what God has to say, to hear the message rather than to, to come to a, a quick and ill-informed conclusion. God wants careful listeners in his church. He's looking for, for those who, who recognize that what he has to say is far more important than what we have to say. The believer knows that God's word is life, We know that we've been born again by the living word. We saw that earlier. So we listen because we want to be changed. We listen because we want God's word to shape and fashion us. We listen because we want to be made adequate and equipped for every good work. That's why we listen. But James is actually rooting this command directly in the Old Testament. His epistle, after all, has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it's called that for good reason because so much of what he has to say is about wisdom, and even like this, it's proverbial in nature. And look back in Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 28, for instance, says even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He is deemed intelligent. In other words, if you want people to think that you're intelligent and your wives just don't speak, and it's probably better to do that than to open up your lips and then take all doubt out. Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's better to listen than to be heard. We listen closely to the things that are important to us. I remember in school, particularly in high school, well, no, all through school, I, uh, I, I had a wandering mind. My mind would think about all sorts of things when it was not a subject that I was particularly interested in. I know I'm the only one here who feels this way, but that's just how my mind worked. But if it was a subject I was passionate about, if it was music, if it was science, if it was something that I had an interest in and it mattered to me, I was there. I was, as you say, all ears. I wanted to learn. And that's the posture of what needs to be there in order to receive the word. We pay attention to the things that matter to us. 
We prioritize the word. That's the posture of submitting to it, having that posture of submission. Now, a, a, a corollary to that, a companion to this idea of being quick to hear is what comes next. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. That's kind of awkward for me to say that because of what I'm doing right now, but we'll get into that and we'll explain why that is. Be slow to speak. It's not talking about cadence. It's not talking about tempo. It's talking about restraint. It's talking about hesitation. It's talking about pausing and delay. And I tell you, we live in a time where there are ample opportunities to speak what's on your mind. Social media is a feeding frenzy for everyone trying to say whatever's on their mind to as many people as they can connect with and as quickly as they can do it, right? And I don't know how many times that I've seen friends and others who have just destroyed relationships and uh, say things that are horribly rash and foolish because they never thought about what they were gonna say. They never thought about how they could say it and they never thought about the consequences that came from saying it. And that is our life on social media. 20 years ago, if you wanted a broad audience to say anything nationally or anything like that, you had to write a book, you had to publish an article these days, you could be on your phone right now while I'm preaching, take out your phone, open Facebook, post something, and millions will see it. It's a recipe for disaster. It's got numerous people in a world of hurt. It takes great wisdom and restraint to not only say the right thing, but to say it at the right time, because it's not always the right time to speak. Sometimes you do have to speak up, but it's not always the right time. It starts with being slow to speak. Once again, James is thoroughly rooting what he has to say in the Old Testament. Proverbs is filled with this kind of exhortations to think of restraining your speech. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression, or transgression is not lacking. That means the more you talk, the more apt there is for sin to be amplified. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent, is smart, is wise, is careful. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. I mean, there's, this is wisdom. I mean, how many relationships have we broken or hurt because we have spoken quickly before we have ever listened carefully? I mean, husbands, wives. I mean, how many conversations have you had and arguments that you've had in your house where it could have gone so much different if you would have just listened and refrained from speaking first? Listened to what your spouse had to say before you responded. Some of my lowest points as a father have come when I have rebuked my kids for something they've done before I really understood what the whole situation was and I ended up learning later that I didn't understand anything about what happened and I rebuked them needlessly or I rebuked the wrong kid, which which happens. But it's because I I didn't get all the facts. I was quick to respond and then, and it was foolishness. 
It's folly. James is very concerned about this. In fact, this command to be slow to speak permeates through his entire epistle. Just a few verses later in verse 26, he links an unbridled tongue to worthless religion. And that word worthless in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is used in the Old Testament to talk about idolatry. So in other words, if you say you're religious but you can't keep control of your tongue, you're no different than somebody that worships idols. Both of them do nothing for you. It's worthless. Verse one of chapter three, this is getting to the awkward part, says not many of you should become teachers. (laughs) But brothers, for you know that What we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's more accountability that comes when you open up your mouth and you proclaim this book. So be very careful before you decide to be a teacher of the word. And the reason he says that is verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Okay? But he's getting somewhere and he's, nobody's able to bridle their whole body. This is verse 3. If we put bits into the mouth of horses to, so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we should be very aware of the danger of a small fire getting massively out of control. We see what's going on in California and Oregon. We've experienced it ourselves. And he says, the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. There's no mincing words with James. I want you to be very aware of this. I mean, what you have to understand is that what you speak, what you say comes from where? Comes from the heart. And according to Jesus in Matthew 12, 34... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. And the heart, we know from Jeremiah 17, 9, is desperately sick. It's impossible for us to fully know what's in our heart. So that should give us great pause. And it should drive us to a posture of submission where we listen much more than we speak. We listen to others, of course, but more than that, we listen to the Word because it is the Word that is going to be able to zero in on what's going on in your heart. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God, you know, this is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You don't want to speak quickly because you don't always know what's going on in your heart. That's why we need the word to show us what's there and we need to be slow before we start to make a response. You want to speak with wisdom and understanding. It starts with a posture of submission to God's word, being quick to hear, slow to speak. And there's a third in this triad of commands that's related to 
to speaking slowly, and that's being slow to anger. Slow to anger. I mean, it certainly is called for refraining in speech, and oftentimes in the Old Testament Proverbs, you have this linking together of speech and anger. It, it naturally happens. We, we bubble over in rage sometimes. We say things that are rash. Proverbs 14, 26, or 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. In Proverbs 15, 1, you know this. A soft answer turns away what? Wrath. A soft answer, which I can read through the lens of James 1.19 to say, a answer that has been thought through carefully with restraint, has been thought through and has been softened. It turns away wrath, but a harsh word, a word that is spoke rashly, quickly, without thinking, stirs up anger. So not only can you speak with anger, but you can also then elicit anger from somebody else and make the whole situation even more needlessly complicated than it needs to be. So there's there's bubbling over kind of just violent kind of upburst of of rash speaking that, that can happen, but James is even thinking more of something more insidious than that. And just kind of heat of the moment words. He uses the word in the Greek, orge, which denotes not a violent, emotional kind of reaction, but it is an inward, seething kind of anger that's hidden in the heart. It speaks of a deep resentment, a resentment that smolders inside of us which only we know about. That's what the word orge is is bringing out. It's that kind of anger that leads to a host of other evils and other sins. Now, we have to stop for a moment and realize That anger is a human emotion. And really, anger is a reflection of the fact that we are made in the image of God. It says all over the pages of the Old and the New Testament that God has anger. Psalm 7 verse 11 comes to mind. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Who who does he feel angry against? It's the wicked. He feels angry with sin and wickedness and the wicked every day. It was the Lord Jesus himself during his earthly ministry who became angry at what he saw when he entered into the temple and he saw the money changers turning the house of the Lord into a den of robbers and he upturned those tables. It says in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that he became angry at the unbelief that the Jewish leaders exhibited when he was attempting to heal a man on the Sabbath. To anger, we should not be surprised if we are made in the likeness of God that we will become angry. And James doesn't deny that fact. It's not a wholesale condemnation of anger. In fact, I'd say there's something wrong if you don't get angry at times. If you don't get angry at sin and unrighteousness and injustice, then you don't really understand what truth is and what righteousness is. But here's the problem. Oftentimes it is very difficult to discern what is motivating our anger. James diagnoses this very problem later when he writes in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Turn there for a moment. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So there were fights that were breaking out in the churches to whom he was writing in the early church. 
They were fighting. And he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So the reasons for the hostility, the reasons for the fighting was because of selfish ambition and self-desire. I want what I want and I get mad when people get in the way. John MacArthur put it this way, people desired to have their own opinions confirmed, their own ways approved, their own likes and dislikes accepted by others. Self-will was supreme, personal hostility was rampant, and the spiritual damage was enormous. And I've seen that happen in churches. People who begin to harbor resentment against one another. People who, for whatever reason, have been wronged, and they've just... Keep it hidden. So the call is for believers to manifest a posture of submission and one of the ways that you do that is to keep your anger in check. Keep it in check. Keep a close eye on your heart. Study your motivations. Analyze your desires. Make sure that your anger is truly justified. But not just that. That a truly justified anger then doesn't morph into an anger that's a deep-seated resentment. Ephesians 4, 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it quickly. Why? Give no opportunity to the devil. Anger that anchors in the heart is an open door where the enemy can come in can attack and to divide, divide relationships, divide marriages, divide parents from their kids, and divide churches. If you are harboring something against a brother or sister here or in the church or somewhere else, you need to deal with that. Deal with the resentment. Attack it and kill it. Because you cannot receive the word You cannot respond to the word if you are harboring resentment in your heart. And if you want to really be like God, it was, if I recall, God who said of himself that he is slow to anger. Now the reason why we can't be angry, why we can't harbor this is because of verse 20. For the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The reason you have to be slow to anger is because man's anger, fleshly anger, can never lead to behavior that pleases God. That phrase, the righteousness of God, is, it's not talking about that kind of Romans 1 forensic righteous, that alien righteous that gets imputed to us from Christ when we believe. It's not what it's talking about. This is... This is a practical righteousness. This is a righteousness that God expects from us. A a righteousness that we live out, that he desires to see in our lives. So the reason to be slow to anger is because it's very difficult sometimes to know whether or not your righteous indignation is truly just or whether or not it's actually fleshly anger. So you have to be slow to to become angry 
Because when you become angry and when you harbor that kind of resentment, it ultimately leads to other sins. Turn with, to Galatians for a moment. Galatians chapter 5, <clears throat> just briefly. Verse 19 Yeah, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What does it look like to be working out the flesh? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I mean, these things are the works of the flesh. Those are the kinds of things that happen when we, be, when we make a home in our hearts for anger. It ultimately bursts out in those kind of things. Slander, gossip, jealousy, envy, divisions. They start with anger. On the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Self-control. So the first requirement of receiving the word, the biggest one, spent a lot of time in this, is that posture of submission, to have a posture of submission as you come before the Word. And that leads us to a second, a commitment to holiness. There is preparation that is necessary to to receive the Word properly. And I'm not just talking about the preparation that you did and went through um, when you you were coming here, you know, the getting up early and getting the kids ready and eating breakfast, putting clothes on, taking showers, hopefully not in that order, and then coming here and hurrying in. And that's not the kind of preparation we're talking about. This is spiritual preparation. This is preparation of the heart. And it happens not just on Sunday mornings, it happens every single day. It has to happen every single day. He says, therefore, verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receiving the word of God as a Christian necessitates that that you are committed to holiness. You are committed to dealing with everything in your life that might get in the way of your receptivity to the word. That word, put away, it means to to strip off, to take off. It's used in Acts 7 verse 58 to describe the garments that were removed from the men who were about to stone Stephen and placed at the feet of the Apostle Paul, taking off of garments. In 1 Peter 3.21, it talks about the removal of dirt from the body. And here, what it is doing is it's it's really picturing the taking off of clothing, but the clothing is sin. It's like you are covered with clothing. I mean, you've been just scouring through the sewer and you are absolutely soiled. You are filthy. 
And before you can come under the word, you have to take that filth off. Put it away. Paul used the same kind of picture in Ephesians 4.22. Put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life. He said in Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. You have to put them off. Hebrews 12.1, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Put them off. Sin is identified here as filthiness and that even reinforces that, that, that picture of taking off these dirty garments. It speaks of filth. It speaks of impurity. It's those things which defile, which makes dirty. It's used in Isaiah 64, 6 in the Septuagint to speak of the filthy rags that our righteousness are before God. It's moral filth that soils your life and you have to take it off. And then accompanying that is the the phrase rampant wickedness. Wickedness is, is a general term for, for sin. Rampantness is talking about excessive or abundant overflowing sin and it's a way to talk about having to deal with it all. Obviously there's gonna be sins that we don't know about that's in our hearts. The, Lord, the word takes care of that. It uncovers and, and divides the heart. But, but if you know about something in your life, you have to deal with it. Because otherwise, what happens is your heart gets hardened and there's no longer receptivity. I remember um, we had satellite TV in uh, Fairbanks and we would get snowfalls that would cover up the satellite dish and we would no longer get reception. And so we'd have to, every once in a while, get all the snow off so that we could have our reception again. It's exactly what happens with the word. If you have a skylight in your home, you have to clean it every once in a while. Gotta get the muck off and all of the stuff, otherwise the light can't get through. Your sin in your life is, is an impediment to your receiving the word. And of course, God is sovereign in this and he pierces through the hard, hardest of hearts, but you as believers have a responsibility to kill sin, Paul says that in, in Colossians 3. Kill it. Mortify it, it says in the old language. God requires a commitment to holiness, to grow as a Christian. You cannot come and sit under the teaching of Scripture and expect to grow and change if you're not committed to dealing with your sin. And only when you deal with your sin can you then move to this last of these triad of components, an attitude of humility. I, mean, I hope you see that all of these are intertwined together. You can't have a posture of submission and not be humble. You can't deal with your sin and at the same time be prideful. They all go together. But there's a timeline here in the text I could maybe translate verse 21 in this way. Having put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word. One has to happen before the other. We see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He's, before you, you long for the pure spiritual milk, he says first, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It has to happen first. But you also need an attitude of humility. 
Verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. With meekness. It's talking about an attitude. It's, it's talking about gentleness and docility, humility. It's the opposite of anger. It's the opposite of pride. It's the op- opposite of self-worth, which is so prevalent in our culture, the self-esteem. Coming under the word requires an attitude of humility. It requires teachability. You cannot be prideful and be teachable. You can't. It requires a readiness to learn, to be fed, to be confronted and corrected, to be poked and prodded by that sharp two-edged sword until everything in the heart is exposed. Just like sin can get in the way of hardening our hearts, so can pride. Pride can turn our ears off just as quickly as, as other sins can. In fact, it's even more insidious because we oftentimes don't really understand how prideful we are Some of the outward sins that we do are are more prevalent, they're more easily identified. Pride is not. There's no room for arrogance, there's no room for self-importance as you approach God's word. Only when you're humble can you receive, as he says, the implanted word. The word receive is, is, is welcoming, it's embracing accepting. It's what the noble Bereans did in Acts 17. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You can't do that if you're not humble. It's like you can't have a life that's fouled up with sin and you can't do that if you're not quick to hear, if you speak rashly, if you harbor resentment. You can't receive the word that way. And James talks about that implanted word. The word's been implanted in us. It, it happened at our, at our new birth. It happened when God rescued us. He says that in, in, uh, in verse 18 of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word's been implanted. It's that picture of the seed that the sower sows into the good soil in, Mark thir- in Matthew 13. And it takes root and it grows. It's that implanted word. It's the word that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again not of, imperish, or of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. That word has been planted, but you still have to receive it. You still have to embrace it. You have to love it. You have to appropriate it in your life, welcoming it. Why? The end of verse 22. Because it is able to save your souls. It's the instrument of your salvation, but it's, it's what sanctifies you. It's what makes you grow. It's what makes you built up in Christ. And it is what will take you all the way from your infancy in Christ when you were first saved, all the way through your spiritual walk, your ups and downs of life, and it will take you all the way until you meet Christ in glory and your salvation is finally complete. That's what James means when he says it is able to save your soul. It is able to complete you to the point of glory.
How do you receive the word as one of the tests of the genuineness of your faith? And it is the way that you measure your spiritual health. One of the ways. So you have to ask yourself, do I approach God's word with a posture of humility or a posture of of submission? Am Am I quick to hear what he has to say? Am I eager to listen my slow to, to say what's on my mind because I don't really know oftentimes what's in my heart? Am I slow to get angry? Am I, do I keep my anger and my resentment in check? Am I committed to holiness? Do I deal with sin in my life so that I can keep that, for lack of a better analogy, satellite dish clear? You know, do I have an attitude of humility? Do I have a proper sense of my self before the Lord and before his word or am I prideful and I just don't know it you got to ask yourself these questions and you know in the end doing what James is asking uh, it's not easy in fact in the flesh it's impossible but I want you to be encouraged by something God has written his law on your heart Jeremiah 31 right that's part of being having the implanted word He has written it on your heart and he has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do what you can't do by yourself. You are not walking through this trying to just muscle your way through this. You yield to the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And if you're not a believer this morning and you're here and... I'm glad that you're here. I want you to understand something, that that the word of God um, is the same word that condemns sin in your life, but it's also the word that offers you absolute hope. It offers you the freedom from that sin. And I just plea with you to soften your heart, to place your faith in Christ, turn away from your sin, to leave it all behind, to place your absolute full trust in Christ's death to accomplish forgiveness for your sins. You don't have to, you have to do anything. Christ has done it all and you have to put your faith in that and he, you will be free from that. You will have the kind of relationship with the word that I have and the believers in this room have. You will be able to say for the first time, I love your law, O Lord. 